Welcome to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast here at Red Flag Radio. We talk about politics, history, things that are going on in the world now, and activism with people who are active participants in those struggles. My name is Ros Ward and I'm the host of the podcast. Alongside me, as usual, is my um, comrade, Liam Ward, who produces the show. Welcome, Liam. Hi, Ros. And also joining us today, I have um, Sagar Sanyal, who's a socialist activist, who is a former lecturer in politics and philosophy here in Melbourne, um, to talk about what's going on in India at the moment, because obviously a pretty big deal, big protest movement against the citizenship law and a whole bunch of stuff leading up to it. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ross. Good to be here. Thanks, Liam. And you were just saying before that you um, grew up in India. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Whereabouts? Yeah, actually. That? So I grew up in New Delhi, where a lot of the protests have been focused and a lot of the protests, as we'll get into, have been around campuses. So I grew up on JNU campus, which is Jawaharlal Nehru University, one of the prestigious universities. It's a bit like ANU or University of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, as we'll get into, that's one of the campuses that the far right have been attacking. Yeah, okay. And so you grew up there because your parents were of work there? or yeah, yeah, my dad was a lecturer. Um, it's always been a prominent left campus and he was a lefty type of economist. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, should we start by talking about some of the general stuff in India before this particular law? Because obviously there's a lot of discussion and debate around um, Modi, who's the president in India, and his role and kind of some of the debates about how much of a fascist government this is and what that means sort of broadly. In the elections last year, um, the BJP, BJP won a massive um, vote in the general election and 45% of the vote share, which is the biggest of any party historically, I think, ever um, in India since independence. So where do you want to start with some of that about Modi and the BJP and what that means? The one, The starting point is... There's a bunch of organizations called the Sangh Parivar, which basically means a family. There's a family of organizations. The BJP is the parliamentary wing of those. Right. But outside of parliament, there's a bunch of other organizations, some of which are outright fascist, and BJP is better characterized as maybe a far-right party. Yeah, okay. So um, maybe I can break down some of the outside organizations. Yeah. There's three sorts, really. There's the most worrisome kind, which are militias or vigilante groups. And they're modeled on Hitler's brown shirts, those sorts of people. They wear uniforms. Some, they're sometimes called the brown shorts because mm. of what they wear. They do weekly or even daily drills of exercises, you know, ideological training, things like that, all around the country, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of them. Um, occasionally, they're trotted out to do intimidation, violence, pogroms sometimes, which will probably end up discussing at some point. Um, apart from that, there's cultural organizations. So all of these organizations are headed by the RSS, which is the ideological 
core of the of the family. Mm. So the cultural organizations are more things like schools in underdeveloped areas, maybe medical centers, which all sounds innocuous, but they're not. They're deeply communalist. Everything they do is about services for Hindus, not for others. And even amongst Hindus, what they mean by education or religious education is a certain brand of Hinduism, a very militaristic brand. And also Hinduism in general is a Unlike the Abrahamic religions, where there's a single book that defines the tradition, Hinduism is very diverse, not just from region to region, but even within a region, the upper caste people, Brahmins and so on, would have a certain kind of Hinduism, they would worship certain gods, lower caste people might worship very different gods, even gods who the upper castes consider demons, right? So there's a lot of heterogeneity. And something the far right has been very conscious of is to build this national unity and a national type of Hinduism. Mm. So even their cultural stuff is about creating that single Hindu identity. And in the um, what's written about uh, the current or India generally and the BJP and so on, this word communalism is used a lot. Can you just give a sort of brief definition of that? It's not really used in other places, right? Yeah, it's special to India, yeah. that term. It's basically Hindus versus Muslims or versus Christians or other minorities. It's effectively what we would call sectarianism in the Middle East or what we would call more or less racism, but not so much on yeah. color lines, more on ethnicity. It, language. it sounds more innocuous, doesn't it? Communalism. It sounds, it sounds like, innocuous. Like yeah. it could be a good thing, right? Right. Yeah. But it certainly isn't. Yeah. And so uh, Modi's history, he was in the RSS, which is what you were saying is the kind of more militant wing of these of this family of organizations. So he was a boy who was trained, you know, kind of in the RSS. And um, one of the things that's written about that is that he sort of was very keen to kind of join in on that idea that Muslims are a big, bigger enemy than the British colonial government, right? Yeah, that's always been part of RSS ideology, going back to the 20s when they were established, more or less following Mussolini and Hitler. In their view, the big enemy was always the Muslims because there was a period of a few centuries of Islamic rule in India before the British conquered it. Uh, really, in the independence struggle, the RSS and the far right played a marginal, minor role because they didn't see the British as all that bad. Um, and their main issue during the independence struggle was really to harden up a Hindu um, communalism and to point it against Muslims. And all that stuff was still in the making, in a sense, right? Because independence struggles tend to bring people together in a country. So there was a separate project of both, especially the Hindus, uh, certain Hindu parties, um, trying to create uh, a division which suited them, not so much ideologically, but just in terms of their own regional politics. Mm. And then Modi was also um, very much a sort of neoliberal politician, and he was a chief minister in, in the Gujarat province, and he sort of had this whole development program. And anytime you hear the word development in association with sort of Indian politics, you know that that means private business, um, neoliberal kind of agendas, like minimum government they talk about and maximum 
governance, but it's like high level corruption, private businesses ransacking whatever you can for profit, and then pretending that that has something to do with helping poor people and development. So that's his kind of um, capitalist uh, agenda mm. in, at the same time as the kind of Hindu communalism. That's so do right. those two things, how do those two things kind of go together, that communalism and the neoliberalism? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think here the division of labor between the RSS and the non-parliamentary groups and the BJP becomes more important because the BJP as this big party their voter base isn't entirely these hardened Hindu nationalists, right? Yeah. That's just a small portion of it. The rest of it is, as you say, a lot of poor people, a lot of people who haven't done well in the neoliberal turn in India since the 90s, but for various reasons, they've convinced themselves that they will do well out of uh, Modi's further neoliberal policies. Um, I mean, we can be more more precise if we like. So... Within the neoliberal turn, as, as neoliberalism functions anywhere, some portions of the population do well and move up the ranks, and the rest stagnate or go down, right? Mm. So in India, some sectors of capital have moved up a lot, and they've started backing the BJP as a party. Some sections of the middle class have moved up a lot, uh, including some middle farmers, uh, while the masses of working class people and small farmers and farm laborers have tended to stagnate or go down since the 90s. Mm. But the sections who are moving up, they've, um, the Modi and BJP ideology and marketing has brought them into his support base. So yeah. that's really what's pushed him into, into power. So does that explain how, because it's, it is, the election results were pretty unprecedented. What are some of the factors that led to that then? So there's people who are who have benefit in some way from the neoliberal project. And what else is there? Because it's, it's, you know, it's millions and millions of people. Mm. Yeah, there's two things really. One is the support base from above within the ruling class. And the other is the voter base. The support base from above is very important here because in the last couple of elections, the BJP has outspent the second largest party by miles, like three, four, five times the amount of money that the second major party had. And the reason they can do that is because a significant portion of the national capitalist class has moved towards the BJP rather than the previous hegemonic sort of center party, which was the Congress <laughs> party, um, which was also a neoliberal party, but less vicious, less communalist. Um, the reason this shift has happened from the Congress to the BJP is um, Achin Vanayak, a, a prominent left Marxist, wrote a very good article about this in 2018 in the New Left Review. He talks about independent India as having two different periods of hegemony. Hegemony over the ruling class, right? So in the first period, the Congress party dominated the bulk of the ruling class by mostly through patronage politics. So in every region, they would co-opt the, the ruling class who rules there, bring them into their fold, and help them out with contracts and things. Mm. Gradually, just because of the economic development, who's at the top of the ladder can change, and new people who were somewhere in the middle can move up and become you know, closer to the top in different sectors, uh, different sections of a class. And... Over the last few decades, new rising parts of the capitalist class and the very upper middle class 
have not found room within the Congress party and have migrated instead towards other parties. And the BJP has been the most successful at pulling those uh, towards itself. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting when we look around the world, the, you know, we look at various elections and over the recent years, and one of the sort of uh, common dynamics has been this um, sense of cynicism and uh, sort of fed upness with the betrayals of the left. Um, you know, and that, that's, that's one of these features that figures in a lot of these elections that we look at around the world where various scumbags ended up coming to power. Um, so it's interesting to me that, that that didn't seem to figure in, in what you were just saying there about, about the, the election of Modi. Um, you know, because India has this, you know, the, this mass left with, you know, all these various shades of CPI this and CPI that, uh, a lot of them with quite a sordid history. Um, is that also part of the dynamic or is that like, I'm just curious to sort of flesh that out. How, what's, what role has the history of the left and their complicity in a lot of the neoliberalism and all of that, has that figured in some way in, in terms of explaining what's going on today? It has, but in a complicated way. So at the very least, they've failed to provide an alternate pole of attraction as people have become increasingly dissatisfied with the center party Congress. And that's partly because when the left, the left front, kind of usually governments in, in India, whether at the center or in states, are coalitions. So the left front governments, when they've been in power in places like West Bengal and Kerala, have really implemented neoliberalism just as much as anyone else. And especially in West Bengal, they became just as enmeshed in corruption and patronage and all that kind of stuff. So they lost a bunch of support. But even beyond that, there is still a lot of left consciousness in India. It's just that it's not enough to mobilize people to bring them to your party mm. because they don't, they, they haven't been giving a lead in a certain sense. Mm. Our comrades are the wall. So Modi com comes uh, to power again through this huge election result and they sort of, it's, there's a sense that the BJP feel like they have this mandate since that election to start pushing through a whole bunch of different things now, um, like more um, cracking down on civil liberties. We talked on this show about how Australia had gone down in the rankings for civil li civil liberties last year, and so had India, I think, to the second lowest level of kind of like a closed society now, according to um, Civicus. And so things like... Uh, this um, Unlawful Activities Prevention Act that was amended so that any individual um, can be designated a terrorist for political views or all, all sorts of things like that. So in terms of protests before this current round, I guess, there, has there been any or has this citizenship law been the thing that's really just kind of unleashed people's anger and frustration? Um, well... It's important to consider the, the previous term, I think, uh, yeah. the 2014 to 2019 term, um, because they, they had already begun their ramp up during that, that phase. Um, some of the stuff like the um, Unlawful Activities Act that you talked about, those sorts of things have been around in particular regions within the country for a while. So in Kashmir or in the northeastern states, which are basically... Um, extremely subordinated, very little development by the center and often wanting to secede. They want to be their own thing and India doesn't let them. Um, but what's been happening since 2014 is some of those laws are now being brought in to be used within 
mainstream India in a sense, kind yeah. of not just in those peripheral parts. Which is sort of one of those things we talk about in terms of laws that get passed at a state level or one one section of a country then is always a, a test for whether you can make that into a national law and that's happened here. Actually, they're not that far off West, like laws in the US or Australia around mm. acts of terrorism and, and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, so let's go on to the citizenship law then. Can you just give a bit, a sort of overview of what that citizenship law um, entails and sort of the basis for why people have found it so, so shocking, I guess? Yeah, um, so there's a, a few related laws. So one is the Citizenship Act itself, which uh, grants citizenship to people who are fleeing persecution, refugees essentially, from particular named countries, Pakistan, Afghanistan, but it very pointedly says we will give citizenship to Hindus, Jains, Buddhists, Christians, nothing about Muslims, right? Yep. And there are plenty of Muslims fleeing those countries, Hazaras from Afghanistan, Ahmadiyyas from Pakistan, and so on. So the point of it is um, really this division, kind of a second-class citizenship for Muslims. A related thing is the National Register for Citizens which has so far been brought in in one state and is about to be rolled out throughout the country. Yep. Now, the point of this is um, uh, people have to produce certain kinds of documents to establish their citizenship. And in India, where you know documents are not easy to come by, lots of people don't have a birth certificate. Sometimes you're required to not just prove your birth in the country, but also that your parents were not migrants from named uh, Muslim majority countries. Yeah. Uh, so people who fail to do that, um, there are now a third part of the um, a group of laws is detention centers being set up for people mm -hmm. who aren't citizens and who may potentially be deported. Yeah. So that stage of things is not very clear yet. It's It hasn't been made into law, but Muslims around the country, understandably, are extremely scared. I mean, the feeling is, regardless of whether you're a citizen or not, if you can't prove that you're a citizen, you're going to end up in a detention camp and perhaps deported, yep. right? So that's the, first, that's the fear about the citizenship stuff. But really, it's much bigger than that. So in, it's much more generally, and understanding again, amongst Muslims especially, but really everyone else, that this is about creating a second-class citizenship. So the real fear, the biggest fear, is not that you're going to be deported. It's that you're going to be harassed at every step by a petty bureaucrat, by the police, by your employer. Any, any way that you can be made less powerful or, uh, you know, you can be pit against your fellow Hindu co-worker, you know, and given lower wages and so on. It's very well understood that that's what these are all about. Yeah. Mm. So, but to what degree does that sort of... Um persecution of Muslims already happen without these laws? Because that's surely, it's it's making legal provisions for a bunch of stuff that already happens kind of informally, I guess. Absolutely. And I think there it's important to keep in mind the main issue is not the laws, but the precedent that is being set for what um, uh, either the police, the state, or thugs, kind of paramilitary sort of militias, can get away with. Yeah. So already since 2014, there's been a big ramp up in some of these, um, uh, the, the more militant militia groups within the RSS doing things like lynchings of Muslims, like fairly prevalent in many parts of India for the last five years, um, disappearances, beatings, 
around specific ideological campaigns, right? So one is, for instance, cow protection leagues. Uh, the cow is holy to some Hindus, whereas many Muslims eat beef. Uh, many Dalits, people who are outcast, they're Hindus in some sense often, but um, lower caste, they might be leather workers. All that stuff is frowned upon by the Brahminical Hindus. So what they have been doing in the last few years is going around finding Dalit communities, leather workers, Muslim communities, beating them up with the pretense that, oh, we're just doing this for religious reasons because don't you know the, the cow is holy, mm. right? Um, but so in that sense, the spread of political terror in particular cities by people who are not the police, but, you know, allied to the main ruling party has been on the uptick. Yeah. Um, and all of that is not not a matter of the law so much. It's just a matter of what's been normalized and mm. what will not be prosecuted by the state. And so how did these protests then, I mean, because in that kind of general climate of like militia um, pogroms basically happening, a huge uh, sort of the hegemony of the BJP politically, it's quite a big task for a minority then in India to say, okay, we're now going to just come out on the streets and start protesting and, in some cases, occupations and so on in the face of police brutality and all of the threats and, the, you know, being lynched, being murdered, basically, if you protest and if you stand up against this. So why do you think now people have sort of found the amazing courage to do that? Yeah, um, it's amazing and was a surprise to everyone on the left, which yeah. is why it's a good thing. Uh, and it is important to stress that it has been, the protests have been led initially by organized Muslims in a way that Muslims have not been organized about specifically Muslim issues for a long time, just because they've been so marginalized and so um, attacked by the media and everybody else for doing anything about defending themselves. Um, so for instance, uh, in Shaheen Bagh, which is a um, neighborhood in Delhi, it began very soon after the Citizenship Act was passed. Muslim women organized together a sit-in, which has lasted ever since. So it's been going on now for over a month, and it's inspired similar sit-ins around the country. Um, and they were really that, and students on several campuses were the first movers. So Muslims organizing themselves at the grassroots, kind of independent of traditional Muslim organizations and students. And then once that caught on, uh, the protest spread much further. And so what does this look like? I know some of them have been uh, on a much bigger scale and then you've got the kind of occupation stuff and the student aspects of it. What are some of the stories that you've heard about or read about in terms of like what people have been doing, the mood of the protests? I know I've read some stuff about people just sort of saying, it's now or never, you know, like old women, young women saying, if we don't resist now, then that's the end and I don't care if, you know, what happens to me at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sense of siege is prevalent, especially amongst Muslims, but really amongst the progressive left. And that's been growing for the past few years. So it's really after 2019 when the BJP ramped up, if, any, if that were possible, ramped mm -hmm. up their militarism and jingoism and just hatred towards Muslims. It just broke people's, you know, broke the camel's back. Um, so some of the things that, that have been happening, sit-ins are a big thing, but also very large demonstrations, sometimes, you know, many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in cities throughout the country. 
in that sense, the scale and spread of the protests about a single issue is unprecedented for many, many years, at least mm. in, in India. Um, in, so it's been partly sit-ins, partly on campuses and partly demonstrations. And to some extent, there's been a union involvement as well, although uh, fairly marginal so far. Mm. And is it mostly Muslims or are there other groups that uh, can recognize the kind of backwardness and racism of the package of laws and measures and so on? Um, no, while it was begun and initiated by some by lots of Mus primarily Muslim groups, there's been a lot of solidarity from non-Muslim groups, um, including in very kind of homely sorts of senses. So... Uh, Hindus, Sikhs coming out and cooking for people while they're at a sit-in, uh, holding prayers together in a mosque, uh, you know, Muslims uh, doing prayers in a temple, Hindus doing a prayers in, in a mosque, all this kind of stuff, which um, from, from people in India who've been going through the past few years of the siege mentality, they see this as an enormous breath of fresh air because mm. the BJP and the RSS because they're so well-funded, so many of the med media companies are kind of pro-them, and they've been putting out this hateful message for all these years. And now, just because of these protests, the entire, in a sense, the political spectrum has been shifted just within these last few months, that all of a sudden, there's outpourings of communal harmony. Not just some somebody saying this on television, some politician. It's that when you're on your way to work, there are tens of thousands of Hindus and Muslims doing prayers together, mm. things like that. So in a sense, that's been uh, a big part of the shift in political culture just in the last month. And the role of women seems to be quite incredible in terms of people who are normally um, at home most of the time, described as housewives or whatever, but talking about how their... Um, their, exper their experience of, of having the courage to come out and join these protests has kind of transformed their political outlook and their, the way they feel about themselves, that sense of not being afraid anymore and just wanting to stand up. And it's not even really about being a Muslim necessarily. It's about fighting for our rights kind of, and that they're encouraging their daughters to join in and their grandmothers are joining in. And it's kind of multi-generational women just saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it's our duty in, in a way to be part of this protest. And if our husbands don't like it, they should learn to like it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And really, if anything, the husbands have do like it and they've been pulled along and they're saying, well, if you're doing it, I'm going to join you. Yeah. And while you're doing your sit-in, let me cook the food so that you don't have to leave and go and do that. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, a big part of the breath of fresh air here is that at least within mainstream media, um, Muslim voices have been marginalized, but also the ones who are given a platform are usually from fairly conservative or stereotyped sorts of Muslims, like the, the, the people that the media wants to be spokespersons yeah. for Muslims. Whereas what this has done is that it's brought ordinary people who are not mm. usually in the business of doing speeches out into the streets, and now they are the spokespeople for the movement. Uh, so the media is forced to go along to these sit-ins and ask these women, why are you out here? What, you know, what's your problem? Mm. Yeah. yeah, amazing. And so Modi wasn't expecting this. 
or do you think that they were prepared for this or not? Um, it, I don't think they expected the scale of things. But it's important to keep in mind that this has been a very deliberate ramping up. So that part they were doing deliberately. And anytime you're ramping up like this, you've got to expect there might be some pushback, mm. right? The scale of it, as far as I can tell, really surprised them. They've yeah. been kind of on the back foot. And so what have they been doing? I know I read about um, having the internet shut down in huge cities where there's just suddenly no internet, um, trying to sort of um, pass laws to stop people protesting in across whole states and so on. Um, this doesn't seem to be working though, right? Yeah, correct. Um, so far it hasn't worked. In fact, it's made the protests bigger and more sustained. So there's two things. One is the immediate responses to the protests, which apart from what you said, it also includes lots of baton charges and tear gas, uh, also live ammunition in some places. So about 20 people have been shot dead by the police, uh, possibly more. Um, worth keeping in mind that this is all very uneven across the country. Mm. So it's a federal system. The states in which the BJP is in power is where as far as I know, all of the shootings and killings have happened. Mm. In the other states, much less so. The protests there have not really been repressed. Um, so that's one side of things, the direct response to the protests. But the other is that, especially in some of the BJP rule states, the leaders have taken this as an opportunity to ramp up their uh, campaign of political terror. So in Uttar Pradesh, where uh, BJP ruled, soon after the protests began, um, uniformed police, I mean, there's videos of this stuff circulating on social media, which is why they're trying to have an internet blackout. Um, uniformed police going around Muslim neighborhoods, just breaking people's property, going into people's houses, pulling out random people and saying, you were at a protest, we're going to detain you, beating people up, looting people's houses, um, sexually assaulting women, like uniformed police, they're not yeah. shy about this. They're yeah. doing this to demonstrate that this is what we can get away with. Mm. And that's the same state where they have banned protests. So then anyone who is suspected of going to a protest or whatever is subject to any of this. But I mean, none Correct. of that really matters. But in terms of the sort of, the, there's no kind of legal mm. cover for that really anyway. Right. But that's a state to put into perspective that has a population of 200, more than 200 million people live in that province. So, I mean, we're talking about huge scale things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how does that, how does this movement or this protest movement then remain cohered or continue to be able to resist that kind of um, pressure or the backlash from the, from the government, particularly in those states, but just generally? I mean, surely there's some pretty big challenges. Yeah, I think um, one issue is so far, a lot of the center parties and the left parties have all been together in these protests. So, so far, it, the protests are basically on the lowest common denominator. Specifically, we hate the citizenship law, yeah. right? But the issue is whether it can go beyond that to opposition to Modi generally or mm. to his policies generally. And that's the kind of stuff that will begin to split the movement. Because the more centrist parties, at least in terms of the economics, they, they love what Modi is doing. Mm. They want more neoliberalism. And they also understand that given the increasing austerity, increasing poverty in the country, some amount of greater repression is really desirable, mm. right? So the more center parties are on board with a lot of that. So 
if the protest movements become more broadly about Modi and his agenda, that's going to begin to shake things up. So far, that hasn't happened. So far, it's all about, you know, even the center parties are saying, you're abusing state uh, state power, police power. We should have investigations into this and so on. Mm. So there's still, I mean, it's such a massive topic, really. But mm. like uh, the amount of contradictions that uh, exist in Indian politics and economics and the whole um, systems in place in, in kind of organizing society, all the communalism stuff. I mean, there's so many different um, dialectical, <laughs> I might say, processes going on that will continue that's very hard to predict which way things might go in a bunch of these different cases. Because if you are using authoritarianism to kind of cover over the fact that economically, I mean, there's been growth in certain sectors of the Indian economy, but it's not a healthy picture overall. And therefore, you know, the crisis that people feel in their day-to-day -day ability to live, um, to eat, to the same things that are, you know, international problems for people living, trying to survive under capitalism. There doesn't seem to be a solution to that except more neoliberalism, more austerity and so on. So those things will remain. Um, the communalism that's been whipped up will remain and might, you know, has these contradictions where there's a certain um, radical edge to it, but at the same time, there's a shallowness amongst ordinary people, which is sort of shown up through this protest movement and the things you describe about people praying together. And like, it doesn't take much actually to break through that potentially. So there's all sorts of different um, aspects of this, I guess, going forward that are reasons for optimism as well as kind of um, the potential for all sorts more barbarism, I guess. Mm. I think to the, um, you know, the, I mean, in one level, the, the movement against all this sort of came, you know, happened or it seemed to happen quite suddenly. Uh, but I think one of the lessons we can draw from 2019 and the struggles around the world, specifically thinking of Hong Kong here, is that w when these mass struggles break out, it's it's not like there's a time limit on these things, which is an unusual concept to grasp because usually you would think there is. You'd think, because I remember when the Hong Kong struggle broke out, I thought, Oh, uh, it could be over in a couple of months, you know? Eight months later, they're still going. There's still tens of thousands of people on the streets. So, you know, that's a lesson for us never to sort of underestimate the capacity of, you know, masses of people to keep fighting, even in a situation where what they're really fighting for isn't necessarily clear. You know, because I was, I was just thinking through what you said before, Sagar, about like, uh, you know, if the movement was to expand and become more of a direct challenge to, to Modi and the government rather than just about the law, um, you know, that that might split the movement. That in itself wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. I think that would be a, a positive development. But even if that minority that was saying, you know, even if it was a minority that was saying we were going to try to bring down the government, if it was a sizable minority, and if they stuck it out for eight months, you know, like just even posing that as a question is sort of like, you know, the scenario that could unfold. There are so many potentials, so many ways this could evolve. Um, yeah, it's 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 just ripe with potential. I mean, the other thing that we haven't really mentioned is back in mid-January, there was a big strike that we haven't really uh, discussed much. And um, you know, is, there, is there 
is did that have an impact or is that something that's sort of on the agenda to, to repeat or, you know, like there are things that could, things that could evolve and push this in all sorts of, um, you know, fruitful directions? Yeah, I mean, the strike uh, on paper looks incredible. So it was a strike of 200 million people, the trade unions claim. Um, it's, uh, the limitations of it are that it's very much a set-piece strike and it's called from above for a single day. It's not a strike in a real sense. It's just a day of stop work demonstration. A similar strike was called last year, which attracted about 150 million people against Modi's labor policies. And really, this strike was already planned as an anti-Modi labor policy thing. And then the uh, Citizenship Act stuff was tacked on the end. There was some hope that the spirit of the protest would spill over into the strikes and maybe more rank-and-file activity that pushes the bureaucrats into more explicitly taking up the cause of uh, Muslims. But that doesn't seem to have happened so far. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's a bit... Um, uh, sad. Mm, uh, mm. I mean, in terms of things going forward, one, another possibility that a lot of people on the left were talking about was the possibility of the protests taking up beyond the citizenship issue, taking up the issue of Kashmir. Mm. Because Modi began his 2019 term with the assault on Kashmir first, before mm. he uh, started attacking Muslims within the country, uh, within the rest of the country, with the citizenship stuff. Now, Kashmir has always been a kind of Achilles heel for the left, not just the rest of society. Because even the left has succumbed to a certain kind of secular nationalism. And we want to preserve the national boundaries of India. And, you know, we want Kashmiris to be treated nicer. We don't want Modi to be so authoritarian with Kashmir. But we just want to restore the previous status quo, mm. right? And really... Things need to go beyond that if you're going to get Kashmiris on your side. And the reason Kashmir uh, matters here is that for a lot of Muslims within India, um, Kashmir, Pakistan, and being a Muslim in India are just tied up together because of the way the, the nationalists mobilize all those three questions together. They conflate them all and say that, well, you're, if you're a Muslim, you're, you know, go to Pakistan or... If you support any um, autonomy for Kashmir, well, you know, you belong in Pakistan, you're a traitor to the country, that sort of thing. So being able to unlock or cu cut through that knot is um, something that was thrown up as possible because the Kashmir repression happened more or less at the same time as the citizenship stuff. But unfortunately, it hasn't been very prominent in the protests anywhere. Mm. So, okay, concluding thoughts, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, what do you think would be some of the best possible things that could happen now? I think the best possible thing in, is a really broad thing, which is a change in general popular political consciousness. But that's very important, given how far to the right popular consciousness has moved just in the last 10 years since the BJP has um, been more prominent. Um, more broadly, there's a possibility... Uh, opened up by Muslims being active as Muslims prominently in protests within the mainstream of India. Um, partly because they've been so marginalized, it's really unclear when they get mobilized what they can get what they can get done. It's, mm. We just don't know. So in mm. that sense, this is a real um, source of hope. And the other one is that the very public 
uh, acts of solidarity from non-Muslim Muslim communities with Muslims. Um, so it's not like there's always been this Muslim-Hindu hatred day to day. There isn't, you know, people are friends across religious lines. But making that a political and public thing and coming out and braving the police together, that kind of thing is a bit new with this dynamic. Mm. So again, that's extremely hopeful. Yeah, incredible. Mm. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on the show. It was a really interesting discussion. And I would like to just say that um, if this has sort of piqued your interest in in politics in India or the question of Kashmir, there's a couple of sessions coming up at Marxism 2020, which is the biggest conference of the radical left here in Australia. happens over Easter weekend. You can check out the program at marxismconference.org. There's a session on the BJP and Modi, and there's also a session with some Kashmiri activists that's being um, hosted by Lee Rhiannon, who's a former Greens senator here, who's taken a pretty strong interest in showing solidarity with the Kashmiri independence struggle. So a couple of great sessions to look forward to at Marxism 2020. Mm. And this has been a great episode. And um, thanks for coming again. And thanks, um, thanks for you. Thank you. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.